Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with episode number 39 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome. Good to see you, buddy. How's everything going today? Going all right. We have another awesome guest with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Emily Splickle, um, and I've been following her work for quite a while now. Um, she's a podiatrist, a human movement specialist, and global leader in barefoot uh, science and rehab, and she's developed a keen eye for movement dysfunction and neuromuscular control during gait. Um, she was originally trained as a surgeon through Best Israel Medical Center, uh, right near me in New York City, in Mount Vernon Hospital. In uh, as the people in the know say, Mike, money earning Mount Vernon, New York. Um, and then Got she it. put her scalpel down in 2017 and shifted her practice to one that's built around functional and regenerative medicine. So uh, she's very much not the typical podiatrist, if, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, her big thing is functional regenerative medicine and the role of anti-aging science as it relates to movement longevity. Um, and she's currently enrolled in, enrolled in a fellowship for anti-aging regenerative medicine uh, from the American Academy of Anti-Aging uh, Medicine. Um, and she recommends all kinds of things like PRP, stem cell therapy, photomodulation, red light therapy, dry needling, acupuncture, all kinds of stuff. And I can't wait to hear all about it. And very excited to talk to you. Dr. Splickle, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both. And then thank you to everyone who's listening. It's an honor. Yeah, absolutely. So as a podiatrist, you obviously have a passion for what the, the, the foot does and everything attached to it, but you don't only look locally at the foot, do you? You look kind of holistically in its relationship to the, in the entire body. And what kind of led you to venture off into this unique approach? Yeah, it's definitely unique for podiatry. I had to seek a lot of outside education and take a very non-linear path in my podiatry training because of that. And I think a lot of that started was partially my background was a competitive gymnast for 13 years. So I had an appreciation for movement as an athlete. I'm sure you guys can relate to that and a lot of the listeners. And then I got into the fitness industry, which what which is based around movement, right? And as I was going through podiatry school, I stayed training and teaching classes. So I had one foot, pun totally intended, in the industry, in the fitness industry while going through my entire podiatry training. And that allowed me to start to apply what I was learning and then start to question and say, that that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel like the whole picture. Um, so long story short, when I was doing my surgical training, I actually took a break. I left residency went back to school, got my master's in human movement. And that's when like the light bulb went off and kind of this aha that I was able to connect feet, movement. Uh, I happened to specialize in barefoot science at the time because it was during the barefoot running boom that this whole 
um, thing happened and I was going through my master's program. So I focused on that aspect. So within functional podiatry and human movement, I have a penchant for the neurological or the sensory side of human movement. Now that doesn't sound like that's the norm in, in your industry. How much of an exception are, are you and what you do? Yeah, I mean, I get asked all the time uh, and I see a majority of my patients virtually because they're, they'll listen to me on a podcast like this or something I do on YouTube or social. And they'll say, is there someone who treats like you in my area? And I mean, I always have to say, unfortunately, no, but I treat patients virtually. Um, I do have some colleagues that are similar, but they, I still don't know what they're going to recommend because I'm not I'm not in the office. And then when I hear it, I think that having the surgical perspective is still really important to what I do and being able to understand when surgery is appropriate and when corrective exercise or just rehab and therapy is appropriate for certain conditions and certain foot types. So I try to cross or not cross that line, but give a very unbiased recommendation to the patients with a explanation of why you may think like this, or you may think like this, but let's kind of find what works for you. What's your reality. And I give them all of the options and the explanation of all of those options, um, just so that they can truly understand their body. Well, that's uh, it's, it's pretty in-depth stuff and I can see why not a lot of people do what you do. Um, so the position, the function, and the posture of the foot can impact so many things in the kinetic chain from your ankle mobility to, you know, great toe extension and how the hips function. What are some other major influences of the foot that a lot of people don't realize or maybe understand? I would say the big toe and the ankle are going to be the two that is the most well-known, especially in the industry, because people are starting to talk about those more. Obviously you have overpronation. So if someone is unstable, they have a flat foot. What I do speak a lot about and give lectures around is there's so many different types and you can't say flat feet because that doesn't, even though I just said it, it doesn't really tell you anything about it. And what I try to help the professional or athletes and individuals to understand is that if your ankle and your heel are doing something that's very different than if your midfoot, where your arch is really controlled, is collapsing. And then there's a lot of different causes for the midfoot to collapse. Um, I oftentimes find that ligament laxity in the foot is one of the least understood in our industry, meaning kind of sports performance and fitness and movement because that's where they think that you can just strengthen the foot and it's a strength problem. But ligament laxity is not a strength problem. That is a connective tissue. And the connective tissue in the foot is very different because the forces and the load that goes on the foot is just very unique from any other part of the body. That That is one of those exceptions where I say, we might need to talk about orthotics. And it doesn't mean that you failed if you have to use orthotics, there's an appropriateness because when your navicular or your midfoot drops, it creates an inward spiral of your tibia or your lower leg, which influences all the way up into the hip joint and into the pelvis. So you could say there's an issue with the timing of glute activation, pelvic floor strength, pelvic floor awareness, um, groin injuries can happen when you have this unstable navicular or midfoot position. Uh, and then, of course, knee issues as well. 
So that was kind of my next question. You already kind of tipped off as far as the big thing that, that well, people complain about, well, I have these flat feet and they'll usually blame, you know, somebody in their family for them. Um, and so I have a bunch of questions. How much of it is uh, actually hereditary, if at all? And then with that, talk a little bit about the difference between, well, there's that flat foot when you just stand there and look at me in a postural assessment, let's say, versus what I can actually utilize in, in, in movement and then how that may change when it gets to be dynamic, where some people may be able to perform dynamically, even though they don't look all that great statically. Yes, yeah, so... Let me start by saying, briefly describing the different types of flat feet and how that can allow the listener to start to create some structure or understanding around how complex this actually can be, is when I look at a flatter foot, a flat foot, again, what does that mean, is I will always look at the foot in an open chain position or a non-weight bearing. So the individual is sitting in a chair, they're sitting on the floor, doesn't matter, they just don't have gravity and body weight on their feet. If you see an arch, so you have arch potential in that foot, hey, I'm making note of that. If they stand up and the foot goes boom and it collapses in, that's where you start to get this rotational, there's an inward rotational component to that collapse of a arch that non-weight bearing was there is that you you get this collapse. So that is also demonstrating that there's a flexibility to it. So we see a flexible overpronation that is observed. You then have to take that foot and say, is that flexible overpronation or collapse because of weak muscles or because of ligament laxity? It's a that's where it's a little bit of clinically in the trenches because I can very quickly identify which are ligament lax and which are strength-based, but typically if someone is collapsing in the rear foot and not the midfoot, it is a strength issue, which means you would do six to eight weeks of foot strengthening, foot to core, glute strengthening. There's great research showing that six weeks of glute strengthening can invert or neutralize a rear foot that is collapsing in. So I go to corrective exercise. If it's going into the midfoot, most likely there's an element of ligament laxity, which is quote unquote, the genetic component. So what you inherit is your connective tissue integrity. That's where I would say that foot type, that characteristic that predisposed you to the flat feet is the ligament laxity. So that's the first one. We'll just keep that over there. Real quick on the side, if you're looking at the client or the athlete, non-weight bearing, and from across the room, you can see that that foot is flat. There's no arch. Obviously, when they stand up and they put body weight, there's no arch, right? So you know that that is a rigid foot type. That rigid foot type is one of two things. It's either the first type that just progressed for so long that it became arthritic, and now it's like an advanced, rigid overpronated foot that's kind of stuck and you cannot move it back into this beautiful arch that it once had. That's typically in the older client is where you would see that. And it's typically quite painful. The second, which I actually see a lot in athletes is what I call a pancake foot. <laughs> and this is not a medical term, but it's just a foot that is sagittally flat to the ground. There's no internal rotation of the tibia. There's no rotational component to that foot type or to that imbalance of that foot type. Their arch just literally dropped in the sagittal plane, if that makes sense. So 
that is approached very different from the flexible overpronated foot that I would do corrective exercise and be able to create an arch. You're not going to create an arch in a pancake foot. Your pancake foot is never going to look like a stereotypical neutral arch that you would see in someone else. Now that one you actually see in certain, um, uh, it is genetic, but it is uh, like cultures. So you see it a lot in people who have a origin, when do we all have an origin from like Africa and Asia. So you see these older, older um, cultures or where man first existed, right? If that's making sense. So you see this foot that is flatter. That is a pancake foot. I see that a lot when I travel and I teach in Africa and when I travel in Asia. So I'll see that a lot. That's a pancake foot again. So that's where you start to classify flat feet with an understanding of do I recommend orthotics, corrective exercise, everyone should exercise their feet. It's just a matter of is someone going to be able to correct that foot? Does someone not respond to orthotics? Rigid flat feet do not respond to orthotics. A pancake foot, I would be very, very mild in any sort of arch support for that foot as well, because they're not going to tolerate it. So that kind of helps you to shape that. Does that help you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And then you had a second no, no. Part of the question that I, I got so long-winded on that part that I don't remember the second half. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite all right. We got plenty more we'll circle back to. Mike, I'm going to pass it to you. And then I, I have a bunch more I want to come back to because there's some key points that you hit right there. Absolutely. So you talked about flat feet. And I think a lot of people, when they hear flat feet, they immediately think orthotic and they don't think that there's anything else they can do. So the question I have for you is, you know, are there common scenarios where you feel like orthotics are truly the best? Or do you feel like it could be sort of a, a placeholder and in addition to using or an orthotic, you can do corrective exercises, et cetera. So tell me how you decide whether or not someone should be using an orthotic for a little bit of time. And tell me when you prescribe, you know, uh, maybe some corrective exercises or some, you know, foot strengthening drills, et cetera. Absolutely. So when I think orthotics, there's three things that I'm thinking about is foot type, injury history, and then the demand that they're putting their foot on. So that's very different for every individual. And I have to understand that if someone has a flexible overpronated foot with ligament laxity and they want to run a marathon and they have a history of plantar fasciitis, I'm probably going to say you need orthotics, right? If someone has more of like the rear foot, not this ligament laxity. So it's a little bit more of a strength issue, but they stand on their feet all day for work and, um, maybe they have a little bit of like post-tib issues, right? So there's a there's an injury history. So I'm, I'm showing that a foot that stereotypically you wouldn't think would need to be in orthotics, but because they're on their feet eight to 10 hours a day, that's just overloading the system. So I need to balance both of those or they're an athlete. Um, if it's like my mom who's retired and has ligament lax feet, but has no pain. Well, I'm not gonna give her orthotics if, she has no symptoms and she's not stressing the system to where it's going to hit a threshold and start to create tissue fatigue. She's just not there, right? So that's why the question of, or the conversation around orthotics really has to be 
individualized with an understanding of those three things. Um, one example that I will give where I do use orthotics is Olympic lifting. And I've done a lot of orthotics, especially when I lived in New York, for people that were doing Olympic lifting and lifting really heavy load is that they will just bottom out their arch compression. So arch compression is your foot is essentially widening and lengthening under load. That load could be dynamic, like when you're running and your foot hits foot contact when you're running and you're landing on a single leg or you're doing some sort of, you know, jerk squat, whatever it is. And you have hundreds of pounds on that connective tissue and those ligaments and you're just defying physiology at that point. I almost make it kind of like a weight belt, like a weight belt used inappropriate, inappropriately is not good for the system, but there is a physiological ceiling to the amount of intra-abdominal pressure that you can generate. And at some point, people will use a weight belt to try to get more intra-abdominal pressure so they can put more load. I think the same way with an orthotic under like a powerlifting type environment is if they're massively loading that system, I need to make sure that that plantar fascia is not pulled too much or that the ligaments, because um, I've then treated plantar fascial injuries in some of those athletes. So when you're talking about injury history, I'm thinking just above in, in looking into the ankle. And then when you talk about if you have a history of ankle sprains and the nature of the, the ligamentous system of the ankle, of its lack of elasticity, and that once those ligaments are kind of stretched, now there's this kind of looseness to, for lack of a better term, to the ankle and the the... Um, then what happens is it, it's a multiplier if you get, you're more and more prone to those ankle injuries. How does that impact um, what you're looking at with the foot? And maybe for those type of people, maybe needing some type of corrective device. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're describing with an ankle sprain, which is a little bit different than other injuries people may experience in the foot, like plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, there's not a component necessarily of direct neurological or proprioceptive disruption. I could make an argument to some degree, but when someone has an ankle sprain, you are actually disrupting the neuromuscular proprioceptive perineal reaction time mechanism. So a lot of subsequent injuries can happen after an ankle sprain, including plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, stress fractures, because they're just not stabilizing the foot fast enough because of the ankle sprain. So on that side, that's where you would see people doing, you know, bracing and K-tape and things like that to try to get that neuromuscular component back to it. Um, so that's where every injury has to be fully understood. A history of a stress fracture is very different. Um, stress fractures tell me that the timing of the stabilization of the foot is delayed, meaning they're not perceiving the ground fast enough. So... I blame stress fractures on vibrations. So it's a vibrational based injury. Let's say the athlete wears a lot of cushion and they're actually tuned out of their feet and they don't feel the ground. They don't actually really feel the ground. That means that they're not stabilizing or anticipating the ground and the vibration coming in fast enough. And then they're essentially getting excess vibration into the metatarsals. And that's how you get a, a stress fracture. So it again, depends on that injury and how I would create correctives based off of that. So when you talk about feel for the ground, um, kind of just give us a, a, 
a brief overview of what, like, if we could take something away day one, or what are some of the things that we can get people more tapped into feeling the connection of the foot, their foot function and how it relates to everything above? What are some of the big things that you like to do to kind of get people to start being aware of that? First one is I would release the feet before every session. And I like the neural ball from Naboso. I have a green one, which is not available, but it's a textured ball that you would release the feet. Now, if you don't have a neural ball and you just have a golf ball or lacrosse ball or a pebble path, something, but you are doing either textural sensory stimulation to have them feel the feet, or you're doing more of a trigger point release to the feet, which will just wake up the circulation. It'll help them to feel the feet just from that palpation. And I like to do that five minutes at the start of the session. Second thing would be to do your movement prep completely barefoot so that you can feel the ground, feel the subtleties of the ground, feel how, you know, the micro articulations of the foot influence the rest of the body. So you're starting with that. And then I would say, for sure, can you actually engage your intrinsic muscles in your feet? Do you know how to engage them? Just like hopefully you know how to engage your pelvic floor and these deeper, uh, highly fascial based muscles that are foundational to all of the other large muscles that we like to contract. If you do those three things, then I would say that's starting to create that foundation of tuning into the feet, tune into the ground, um, feel how your foundation influences everything. And it all, it all starts bottom up. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about footwear and you had mentioned uh, earlier about like Ollie shoes. And we've talked about, you know, you didn't really say, it, but sort of runners with a, you know, really, really cushy heel. So, um, when it comes to activities for individuals, and, and one of the things that I always like to preach is you should have different shoes for different things. Um, how important is it for, uh, for individuals to choose the right footwear so they can optimize their performance? And are there some scenarios where maybe they shouldn't be going into something with like, uh, you know, a zero drop shoe because it's, it's too aggressive and, uh, et cetera. So I think a lot of people with this whole craze, they assume, well, I should be doing barefoot running. So everybody did what we all did, right. When the Vibrams came out and everyone put their Vibrams on, they went out and they started running and, you know, everybody got, you know, calf issues and Achilles issues because the load was too much too soon. So can you just talk about, um, you know, appropriate foot war, but also the importance of time and adaptation when it comes to, you know, maybe choosing a shoe that has a little bit less uh, support in general. Yeah, absolutely. So high level, I love minimal shoes. I love training barefoot. Like I think that all athletes and individuals should train barefoot. I obviously just said that as a way to connect and strengthen to the feet and all of the nerves that are found in the bottom of the feet. So if you're looking at shoes, you would think that it would make sense to be in a more minimal zero drop wide toe box no cushioned shoe that you can twist and rotate and fold all of that. Okay. That's great. However, just like orthotics with shoes, you have to match the foot type, the injury history and the demand at which you are using the shoes in. So if someone is has a ligament lax foot that we just discussed and has a injury history of plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis, and they are a runner. I would probably 
not try to get them into a minimal shoe and say, well, the problem is that you've just been in cushion shoes for so long. Like that's the problem, but really it's not. It's the lack of intrinsic foot strength and control in that ligament lax foot. That's the problem, not the cushion. In many situations, there is way too much cushion out and it's very trendy right now. <laughs> Super foam shoes and thick stacked shoes are very in trend right now, especially in the running space. So you have Hoka and all these super shoes, the, you know, um, what is it? The one from Nike, the 4%, uh, the Vaporfly or whatever it is. Like they have all of these carbon fiber you know, high-tech foam shoes that are allowing the runners to really defy, you know, their their personal records because of just technology. Having said all of that, we obviously want to get people more, more minimal. So where I recommend people is, let's say a basketball player. A basketball player, there's a benefit to the basketball player to train barefoot, to tune into their feet, to lift in minimal shoes, no cushion, um, or as minimal cushion as zero drop as their foot type can tolerate to be in a more natural environment. However, if the sport demands a certain shoe, like a basketball shoe has a certain structure to it, a golf shoe, a football cleat, all of them have sport specific design features. So we understand that. Can you find a balance in the other environments? Then based off of injury history, if I have anyone who has a hallux limitus, a hallux rigidus, we spoke about that a little bit in the beginning about the great toe and how if you don't have sufficient great toe range of motion, you won't get optimal hip extension. Your glutes can actually start to deactivate. You can get weak glutes. So there's that important connection. I will actually recommend Hoka to them, even though I just said <laughs> Hoka has a big old stack. But I want the feature of the rocker in Hoka for that athlete or that individual who has a hallux limitus or rigidus. So I'm matching my footwear recommendation based off of the injury history and that foot type and then the demand. So let's say they're saying they will not give up running. Sorry, coach, I'm never going to stop running. I know I have no range of motion in my big toe, but I'm not going to stop running. It's what makes me happy no problem. Then I will say, I need you in your hokas because I need you to get that range of motion somehow. So that's where I try to understand the features of shoes, understand the foot types, understand the injury histories that could exist, and then weave that in based off of the demand of the individual. Um, I, I wish that I could tell everyone to wear minimal shoes, but I don't own a minimal shoe company, so I don't have to be biased on that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Now, I want to circle back to something you said earlier that, I, <clears throat> excuse me, has some real elegance to it that um, we that I, I think shouldn't be missed is that 
you talked about, you know, corrective exercise and in some of your plans of action and some of that we, we always think about is, is strengthening the foot and isolating and looking very myopically there. But you also talked about use, using and utilizing things like the pelvic floor and the glutes and, and core strengthening to actually benefit the function of the foot. So as much as it goes up, it also works down, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a very important integration, stabilization. There's actually a muscle synergy that they've shown on uh, fMRI in the brain between the foot, specifically the toes. So the toe flexors. So imagine the toes pushing down into the ground and the pelvic floor and specifically the part of the pelvic floor where they're seeing it is the posterior pelvic floor. So if you imagine that you're about to take a step or you're about to jump, and you're getting a lot of, you know, power output, hip extension, acceleration, the muscle that you're also probably thinking about higher up in the pelvis is going to be your glutes. Well, I often say that your glutes are only as strong as your pelvis is stable. And the muscle that is creating like deep fascial stabilization of the pelvis is your pelvic floor. So there is this inherent connection between your digits and your posterior pelvic floor, which sets the stabilization between your center of gravity, your pelvis, and your contact point with the ground. Um, and that's how I, I teach that activation with short foot, with forward lean. Um, if the listeners are not familiar with short foot, it's really pushing your toes down into the ground. But when you push your toes down into the ground to create like a dome of the foot, or an arch, or you'll you'll oftentimes feel the contraction in the small muscles when you push your toes down. What I want the individual to do is that as they push their toes down, they're lifting their pelvic floor. As you do that, you are exhaling your breath. So you're creating a stabilization stack. And I, I call it being barefoot with intent. So you can train with no shoes on, and not have any consciousness of your feet and your foot muscles. So I need people, if they are going to be barefoot or they are going to integrate their foot, that they're very intentional and integrated in the way in which they do that. So oftentimes I don't teach isolated foot exercises like um, resistance band, open chain resistance band to say the post-tip or the perineals, things like that, because I don't find it favors that integration between the foot and the pelvic floor. Now, another thing you mentioned that fascinates me is, is the timing of it and not just necessarily strength in and of itself isolated, but the timing of when those muscles come on. And if you look at some of the work of like Rob Gray or, or, or um, Franz Bosch talking about slack within tissues and that, that timing mechanism of, of that rate of force development. So when we do come off that curb or the heel snaps or you step on an unstable surface, how quickly you can make those adjustments and corrections and how we actually train that, be it that elasticity, that ability to react and, and, and uh, correct ourselves in those scenarios. Yeah, so everything is about timing. And this is where I feel like perhaps some of the stuff that I was saying or I do say in my lecture can be quite abstract because everything is based around the timing. So it's about the anticipation of the ground. So our foot needs to be able to anticipate the street as you step off of the curb. You can't react 
to the street when you step off the curb. You can't hit it and then feel the ground and the impact forces and react to that. The, the neuromuscular system isn't fast enough to do that because the velocity at which impact forces are coming in is faster than we can react to it. So we have to be in this anticipatory state or what is called pre-activation. This is a lot of the work by Dr. Ben Onig, who has the muscle tuning theory, and he had dedicated his career to footwear surfaces, orthotics, just really that foot ground interface. And that's just really what he's focused on from a neurological perspective or a neuromuscular perspective, and just really demonstrated this anticipatory response of the nervous system, especially when you are in repetitive patterns such as walking, running, right? Things like that are very uh, sensory and fascial-based movements. So when I teach and train, I want either the coach to implement this or I will guide the client or the athlete to implement this philosophy into how they train. And that's why I do think that everything starts with the nerves in the bottom of the feet. I try to get people out of cushion so they can feel the ground faster. They don't have that buffer between them. And then when you train short foot and fast feet, it has to be a rapid stiffening response and then a relaxation. You have to be able to do that, which is why it's not, it's not, you know, okay, I can contract my foot muscles for a minute, for five minutes, for 10 minutes. Like that, that doesn't mean that that's transferable to function in the way in which the foot actually contracts. The foot is designed to very rapidly stiffen and relax. And that is how energy is absorbed and then elastically recoiled during dynamic movement. All right. So speaking of stuff that may or may not transfer to, to function, uh, my head is is going, as you're saying, all this stuff, thinking about, okay, well, what about unstable surface training versus stable surface training? How much do we need to navigate ourselves over stable surfaces much more than we do unstable surfaces under us? So where does that come into play or have value? Yeah. So there is... Um... Yeah. And I'm sure there's some things that people are just like, whatever, I'm going to call bullshit on you, but whatever people can call bullshit <laughs> um, is if you look at like, let's say a wobble board or a BOSU, a Dynadisc, just you're on something unstable, right? And either you're standing on it on one leg or you are doing something with it, like a, a squat or you're doing eye-hand coordination while you're on something unstable. So you're kind of getting to what, um, what I'm asking as far as unstable surface training, right? Is initially you're not good at it, right? You're like all over the place and you're like, damn it, I thought my balance was better, right? And then if you do it over and over, you know, every week, you start to notice that you get better and better at the BOSU or the Airx pad or whatever it is, because it is a skill, which makes sense. It's a skill, we're training skills, right? but it is a skill. Now, when you look at how we, from a sensory system, we create stability so we don't fall, whether we're walking, we're standing on one leg, we're standing on an Eric's pad or a BOSU, right? There's a system of visual, vestibular, proprioceptive, mechanoceptive of how we maintain stability. Your nervous system is creating a strategy, its own strategy to do that skill. 
So just because you could stand on a physio ball, let me do an extreme example, and you're at the gym doing that, that is a skill. That doesn't mean when you are on the court or the field or you are just walking at the mall with your friends, you're not going to sprain your ankle because one's not necessarily transferring to the other. And a lot of the research shows that when we stand on unstable surfaces, the reason that we improve at the skill is because we are upregulating your visual system. A lot of people actually think that the reason that you're good at that skill is because you have badass ankles now. Your proprioceptors and your perineal reaction time and that ankle is just bulletproof. It's not true. It just, I wish it was. But the prevalence of chronic ankle instability still persists. And they will show that, well, if I do wobble board training on an unstable ankle, will it improve? And then there's so many inconsistencies in the research. So really what they're seeing is that people are getting good at the skill and they're probably upregulating their visual system to improve at that skill versus the proprioceptive. Now, having said that, at Naboso, we have a kinesis board, which is an unstable surface. However, what I try to advocate around it is if you do an Eric's pad, a BOSU, you use the kinesis board and you're something on something that is perturbing, that is technically a neurostimulus. So could I do that as a way to perhaps perturb, maybe activate, stimulate? I'm just trying to do some form of neurological training which trains the brain, which trains the nervous system, which ultimately affects movement. So there is an appropriateness on it. I, I don't put anyone who has an ankle sprain on an unstable surface for at least eight weeks after that injury, because I need to have all of the other foundational components activated and aligned first before I put them on an unstable surface. Again, it might not be a popular response, but... <clears throat> The skill popular in me i can tell yeah. you that much i told you mike i told you that stuff was bullshit um <laughs> so there's a, there's what? a great i've been doing it all wrong <laughs> <laughs> there's a great expression i remember seeing uh uh john Believernick was the guy's name spoke at a conference many many years ago and he used to say you know you can you can stand on a ball you could stand on a ball picking your nose it's not going to make you any better at picking your nose um so uh, Mike, you work with a population that is primarily barefoot in their sport. Um, talk about a little bit, um, in, and I want to get Emily, your your insight into a little bit. And Mike works with a ton of mixed martial artists and, and their time is all spent barefoot. And what some are the, um, you know, for an athlete like that, what are some of the considerations or things at least that you see or, or have to encounter when that that's that's part of their sport? Yeah, so I've actually worked with some MMA and, you know, the variety of martial arts that they're training under, and they obviously appreciate the foot and how powerful they need to create that connection to the ground. Um, I would consider them kind of like gymnasts, dancers, that they know that there's something really important to their ability to create rotational power, power up into the shoulders, just their stabilization, their control, their center of mass. So yeah, I love barefoot athletes. I hope that they're doing short foot and strengthening their toe flexion strength because there's a lot of research around toe flexion strength and acceleration power 
torque, balance. It, it's all really coming from those digits. Yeah, awesome. one of the things that I've noticed with uh, with specifically, you know, training with a bunch of mixed martial artists and Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, athletes is, um, I think one is the uh, the great toe. And if they can't extend that, everything that they do from there is just everything just, it's amazing to see how much it robs them of their function, mm -hmm. especially when you're on a sport that requires you to load the foot in at various different angles and positions. And uh, I don't think people um truly understand kind of what people put their their body through when they're training barefoot and how they're exposing their you know uh, their joints and all their connective tissue to these weird odd angles etc and um a lot of people early on when they start the sport like they're they're just their feet are absolutely destroyed because they've never really had to use them in in a way that actually makes a lot of difference and then you you know you get them barefoot um, and you get them, you know, even walking around for a little bit and they're like, man, my feet are killing me. So that's one of the things that I, I absolutely, um, I've noticed with people. So the question I have for you is, um, for, for grapplers and, and athletes that spend a lot of time barefoot, you, you mentioned earlier about kind of releasing the foot and using a ball. Would you, how often would you recommend, you know, grapplers, fighters, athletes that train barefoot to do stuff like that, to really focus on foot hygiene? Yeah, so for, let's say, a trigger point release or a myofascial release to the feet, I recommend that people would do it in the morning because when we sleep, you know, six, eight, nine hours, I don't know how long someone is sleeping, your duration of sleep, you actually create a lot of stickiness in the connective tissue. And there's so much fascia and ligaments in the bottom of the foot that I would want that to be part of their morning routine, they're brushing their teeth, release your feet, right? Let's just bring that circulation and that hydration to that connective tissue in the bottom of the foot. If they trained, you know, the prior day, then are those foot muscles tired? Okay, well, let's just kind of give a little TLC to the muscles as well. Five minutes, great. They're doing it when they brush their teeth. Awesome. Can they do it then five minutes, the first five minutes of their training? So part of their movement prep, right? Or their warm up, if you want to call it that, is they're releasing the feet again, but this time it's more for to tune in, right? Like I'm actually touching, palpating, waking up the foot so that it's ready for training. If they have any sort of, I see a lot of first MPJ compression injuries in grapplers and jujitsu and things like that, because they're just kind of on the mat and all these crazy positions and the foot is trying to stabilize. So it's pushed in, pushed and compressed in a variety of planes, um, which I'm sure you've had some athletes that complain about the first MPJ compressed or injury, kind of like a turf toe injury in a sense, um, is to stretch and open up that digit if they need to just stretching the capsule. Then again, they would do it at the end of the day. So you, it doesn't have to be after their training, once they get off the mats, they're releasing the feet again, it could be back let's say at home as at the end of the day, they're brushing their teeth again, releasing their feet. So it's just kind of becoming the two times. So the end caps of the day when they, when they wake up and before they go to bed, they're consistently doing that. So there is that um, just a daily reset and hydration and TLC to the feet and the foot muscles. And then on the days that they're training, they're doing it as a way to actually kind of wake up. Okay, I feel my feet. Let me get that that blood circulating to the feet. That's how I would do that foot recovery for someone, uh, whether they're doing jujitsu, but honestly, everyone. I mean, even if they're playing soccer, <laughs> do it before they put their cleats on. 
is there anything Perfect. else you would you would want to see kind of everybody do in terms of just like movement snacks uh, throughout the day, other than just you know rolling out the foot? What what are maybe one or two other things that people can kind of incorporate every day is like these little movement snacks to to keep their foot healthy um, and everything above it. Yeah. So other ones that I like, so there's a technique called forward lean. So this is really good for people who are just very disconnected to the foot. A forward lean is you are standing in a feet shoulder width position. You're rotating your feet into neutral. I have videos on YouTube on how to even find neutral. What does that mean? So the athlete has to know how to do that. And then you're standing tall, stiff as a board, and you literally just lean your body forward. Um, you could think like a ski jumper, right? But that is not what I'm talking about. You're not leaning that far. <laughs> it's just a slight lean of your center of mass. And you do that just five to eight times. And I call it like you're waving like a tree in the wind, right? You just kind of lean forward, go back vertical, lean forward. And what you're activating is every time you lean forward slightly, your toes are going to anchor into the ground. You can't help it. This is a reflex. So you're activating a postural reflex between your feet and your center of mass. So for me, it's easy, especially easy for my patients that have movement disorders because they just, they have a hard time connecting to their feet or if they have neuropathy. Well, I have people do that. And then a focused short foot. So one leg, which is what I had said. And then can you stand on one leg? So I spoke about the um, skill and potential lack of transferability of standing on an unstable surface. However, there's something very powerful of standing barefoot on one leg. Because we do that when we walk, right? You are on a tripod on a stable base every time you go through mid stance when you're walking. So I love to have people do just a 10 to 30 second single leg stance with their toes engaged. Do the other side. You can put a ball between the heel. So put the ball between the heel and do a calf raise. And every time you come up, you're driving your heel. I mean, you have to drive your heels into the ball and you tuck your heels and you're essentially activating the posterior tibialis and the locking mechanism of the foot when you push off. Um, so just those. Like this is my, this would be like my foot movement prep um, for people that I do work with that have movement disorders. They do this every single morning when they wake up is release the feet, find neutral, forward lean, short foot, short foot, single leg balance, single leg balance, ball between the heels, squeeze, boom, that's it. That's their, their activation that I want them to do every day. Spectacular. And in full disclosure, I've, I've seen your videos and I've stolen that, that ball between the heels. It is a, uh, it is wondrous. Uh, now I'm stealing the forward lean and I'm adding that one in as well. Um, so we'll put links up to, to YouTube and all the uh, places that we can catch you, but, but tell us a little bit about what some of the new and exciting things you have going on uh, in your life and in coming up and in 2023. Yeah. So uh, I spent a majority of my time doing Naboso, which um, for the listeners is a sensory technology company. And we have textured products from our insoles, socks, release tools, weighted sticks, mats, the wobble board, whole gamut of product line. Uh, we're launching some new products. So I'm heavy in that. Uh, and then I'm writing a book for human kinetics on balance training. So I have a brain-based balance training book that I'm writing for them. So I'm working on that in 23 uh, and then just continuing to evolve uh, and explore. And I'll be at the Perform Better Summit. So 
hopefully I'll see some of the listeners and see you guys there as well. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll, I'll be in Orlando and Mike, you'll be in Chicago, right? Yep. All right. Any closing thoughts, Perry, before we wrap up? No, uh, great information. And, um, you know, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I think, you know, the foot is one of those things that gets neglected and people don't think about it unless they injure it. And then they, then they really think about it. So uh, I think if like anything, we could be proactive with, with this information and get people to say, Hey, look, you should be taking care of this stuff and not be so reactive when it comes to taking care of, of, you know, their feet, because we're on them all day. So thank you so much for, for sharing. Yeah, you're so welcome. I really hope the listeners enjoyed. And then if anything was like, what is she talking about? <laughs> I just tell them to have another listen, listen to the podcast again, or to check out some of my uh, other videos I have on YouTube. I have a lot of online courses. And then what I would say is just like one last comment is that the feet really are not simply one type and that everyone falls in one bucket and one recommendation is that there is there is a lot of personalization to the recommendations that I give. And I would just encourage the listeners to start to explore the, the complex but fascinating world of the foot so that they can really start to get specific and dialed in based off of the actual foot type of their athletes that they're working with, because it really will make a profound impact. Yeah. And I'm sure we've only scratched the surface and that's why there's, there's only one of you and people are seeking out from all over the world as they should. I, again, I'm going to echo Mike's sentiments and thank you for everything you've shared with us today. And I highly encourage everybody uh, who doesn't follow Emily on social media and, and, and as well as uh, all those channels, please do. Cause I've, I've, as I've said, I've learned and stolen quite a bit over the years and continue to, uh, to hope to do so. So thank you. And thank you for listening. And this has been the principles of performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.